Welcome to episode 186 of Control the Controllables. If this is the first time you have listened to Control the Controllables, I'm Dan Kiernan, and it's an absolute pleasure to, to welcome you to the show. There's 185 other episodes that you can listen to after you've listened to today's guest, Dave Miley. I think tennis teaches you if you want to have success, you've got to be ready to lose sometimes. So sometimes you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes things are not going to go exactly as you think. But if you are scared to do things, you're never going to be successful. And Dave, after 25 years working at the ITF, he's been heavily, heavily involved in the world of tennis. He's someone who is not afraid to challenge the status quo. He's got strong opinions. He's had big successes. He's an Irishman who you'd love to have the crack and have a beer with, but he's also someone who is not afraid to sit in a boardroom and put his opinion out there, and and all for the love of tennis. That's where his passion lies, and that's what he's pushing through now as he's working in Kazakhstan tennis that has emerged as, as one of the more successful tennis countries over the last few years whether that's on the junior circuit or whether that is also professionals coming through obviously Reba Kina winning Wimbledon last year Bublik and there's many names that are starting to make the way through and Dave shares it all he shares his experiences we delve into many many subjects that anybody that is a tennis fan Anybody that's involved in the world of tennis will love to hear about. And I'm sure you will absolutely love this episode with Dave Miley. Dave Miley, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Nice to see you. And, and as you just said there off air, it's not easy to hit a moving target. You know, I've been trying for a while, Dave. You've obviously been moving way too much. So what's been going on? Well, you know, I'm I'm tennis director in Kazakhstan now. I've been there for the last, well, just over two years. And uh, it's very interesting. You know, we have pretty good tennis. I think 10 players in the top 100 singles and doubles, ATP, WTA, and some pretty good juniors. So I can tell you about that later on. But yeah, no, it's a very interesting role. And I, I, I would say that after running for ITF president, it's like I took a shower. I feel clean again. I'm actually working in tennis instead of politics. So it's quite nice. Well, there's, there's all of that that I want to get into, Dave. But I think, yeah. as with everyone that comes on the podcast, for, for me, I always think it's fascinating to know where where the passion is born. You know, it's like in someone like yourself, we've we've not crossed paths, really. I, I, I certainly know a lot of people yeah. that know you and likewise. But what, one thing that really does hit me is you are a man that has a strong passion for tennis. So, so where... Where did that start? What was it that really got you attracted to the sport? Take us back all of those years ago. Okay. Well, it's interesting. So I was, you know, I'm, I'm a bit complicated guy because I was born in South America. I grew up in Jamaica. I studied in the States. I live in London and I'm Irish passport holder. So it's a little complicated. I'm living in Kazakhstan. But look, my, my grandfather played Davis Cup for Ireland. He was on the first Irish Davis Cup team. And he and his brother played Wimbledon in 1927 and uh, 1910. So I came up, I grew up in a, in a tennis family. My, 
father had been quite a good tennis player and well, reasonable player. So I got into tennis in Ireland because we'd moved back to Ireland. I played tennis at the local club in Malahide, became a pretty good junior, eventually got a college scholarship to the States, um, played college tennis for four years in South Carolina. We were a pretty good team. Came back to Ireland, was top 10 ranked for a long time when we were in the World Group of Davis Cup. And then decided after seven years of university, because I spent four years in Ireland, sorry, three years in Ireland, four years in the States studying, three degrees. To my father's disgust, I decided I was going to get involved in tennis because he was an accountant. I thought I should get into accountancy or law or something. So I started in tennis. Uh, I was working in Ireland as a coach, eventually moved and had my own indoor tennis center in just outside London with a team of coaches working for me. I bought the center. I didn't have any money, but I found a way to buy it. Eventually sold it. And then in 1991, the ITF, I, the ITF asked me to join the ITF. But in the meantime, what I did, and this is where my real passion came from, I was like a, a, a mosquito trying to get information. So I went to the European Coaches Conference representing Ireland Worldwide Conference and eventually managed to get to Germany and Sweden when they were the top nations. They were dominating tennis at 88. And I went to Bostad, saw the way the Swedish trained, went to Germany, Hanover, saw how they were training. So I learned a lot. And eventually I felt, you know, I, I knew maybe a reasonable amount. I'm still learning at the moment. Every day is a school day. But it's, um, yeah, so that was my, my passion. And eventually with the ITF, I, I worked for them, traveled 140, 150 countries, saw was involved in every area of international tennis development. And yeah, I've got a passion. I think it's the best sport for building life skills. Uh, so many reasons why tennis is a great sport. Uh, teaches you so much. And yeah, I, I, I'm passionate. I think it's a great product. And that's why I ran for ITF president when I left the ITF, because I really think tennis is fragmented. They're not focusing enough on tennis issues. But anyway, that's how I got into tennis. That's my passion, my my family and and by the way my my grandfather's as the first davis cup sorry the first involved with the first irish davis cup team after independence 1923 they played india okay they won 4-1 and then they played france and the historic significance of that that was the first time france had the four musketeers playing together in 1923 and, and ireland lost 4-1 so that's my history okay Brilliant. And in terms of a key influence, was there a key influential person along that journey that you could pinpoint and say, if it wasn't for this person, I would never have gone on and done what I've done in the sport? Well, you know, there's so many people who influence you along your life, your first coach, you know, different people and stuff. But probably Doug McCurdy, who was the director of development for the International Federation, he saw something in me and asked me to join the ITF in, in 1991. It coincided with the breakup of Soviet Union and, and uh, former Yugoslavia. And I visited all of those countries over the next four or five years. But Doug taught me a lot about uh, tennis administration, about tennis in many ways. And I learned a lot from him. And he eventually went to the USTA as head of player development. I took over as director. So Doug was probably the most influential person, amazing kind of uh, person coach, trainer, and I traveled all over the world, which then I continued on the work that he had done. So, yeah, probably he's the most influential person. But there were many people that I met during the years, Worldwide Coaches Conferences. By being around people, you pick up so much, whether it's with physical fitness or top tennis coaches. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I've been lucky. But Doug is probably the most influential person from my, my tennis career. And is there a point, I think when I was thinking about 
having this conversation, Dave. And and as I stress it, I don't know you, but I obviously you've heard a lot about you and I've, never convicted. I, I, never convicted. I, I've 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 followed I've followed your work, and the the question came to me: Have you ever been content? Is there ever been a moment within the sport that you've had a feeling of contentment or or have you, have you always had a feeling of, right, what's next? I need to now move this. I need to shake that. I need to. Okay, that's a good question. Look, there's been lots of great moments, but probably the best moment was in 2010 at the, at the ITF AGM when they approved the rule change for 10 and under tennis. I took 10 years driving this rule change where... Okay. We brought in a rule where uh, you couldn't use yellow ball in 10 and under competition. And it, and it was really, you know, it's the fifth rule change in the history of tennis. So I had a big impact on that. So that was a huge achievement. Other thing was really very good was the combined ranking that Lucas Antilli and I brought in in 2005 for junior tennis, because that had an impact and cascaded all the way down through all the federations. So everybody uses singles and doubles rankings combined. But here's the thing, you know, I learned this from people like Dennis Van Lemire, Nick Boletari, people like that. If you want to stay young, you have to have a passion. You want to do more stuff. If, you, if you're too content, you, you just get old. So I, I joke all the time. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah. Okay? I'm 60, 63 years old. I still have a lot to do, I think, in tennis. I still want to try to make an impact. And so that's what I, I feel is, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I remember being at the... Uh, the champion's dinner when Nadal was champion, okay? And so he was presented with the award and they asked him, what motivates you in tennis? I always remember him saying something like, you know, every day I try to get a little better. Every day I try to improve. I love tennis, but I just, every day is, so that's kind of, I'm not comparing myself to Nadal, but every day I, I'm trying to learn a bit more about tennis. Every day I feel I am learning and every day I'm trying to do a little bit more and, uh, yeah, that's it. I have stuff to do, and I hope I have the time to do it. Yeah, because it's it's this like I I've picked up this this concept of life being a continuum, which is which is what you're what you're basically saying, and you know it's it's just a kind of continued journey where you're trying to get a bit better, whether it's playing, whether it's coaching, whether it's in administration, you know, whatever it might be. And I think it's such a good message for junior tennis players as well, you know, who get so caught up in something being so, so important in that, in that very moment and they're unable to perform, you know, having that perspective and that outlook, you know. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's it. That's it. And that's what, you just keep trying to get better. And also, you know, what's the definition of mental strength? The definition of mental strength for me is staying in the moment and playing the next point. Because that's what Nadal does. Next point, next point, next point. Yeah. And that's why they're so strong. You know, no matter what the score is, you keep trying, keep playing the point. And that teaches you stuff in life. You know, when you get a bad call in life, you can deal with it. When the conditions are not perfect, you can deal with it better. You know, you learn to always do your best, even if you're losing. And that's, the life skills that come from tennis that really other sports don't don't teach you. I use this example sometimes with parents to show the difference between tennis and soccer. If in soccer you push a player and the referee doesn't see it, it's not a moral dilemma. Nobody's going to call you a cheat. But in tennis, if you call the ball out, even if nobody's umpiring, okay, it's a it's a, you learn that's not right. Yeah. So I'm just giving an example that, that this is just one example why our sport teaches you a lot over the time that you play it. But is it also important, though, 
that we do allow those times of momentary contentment, you know, like, so like you say, you pushing through these rule changes, a couple of glasses of wine, celebrate that success. I, and then I we do go, it yeah. all. I do it all the time. You know, I mean, <laughs> for example, this year with our Kazakhstan, uh, I don't know whether you followed, but our, we, our 14 and under team, yes. we qualified for the world finals, uh, beating Australia in the Asian qualifying. And then we finished fourth. We beat Italy, Argentina, Slovenia, and almost beat USA in the semifinals. And that evening, after you know finishing fourth, I was like, "Wow, that was amazing!" And yeah, and I had a couple of glasses of wine and reflected on it because it was the first time ever. Yeah, that that was very satisfying, you know. And yeah, you're right. You have to, uh, you know, enjoy the moments. You know, smell the roses during the journey. And yeah, my my, I've seen a lot of things, and you know, I've seen in ITF when our Players on the ITF team won Junior Wimbledon or Junior Grand Slams. I, I, you know, it's fantastic. Or, you know, Worldwide Coaches Conference when it finishes and you've had all these top coaches, 850 coaches in Mexico in 2013. Fantastic speakers. And, and yeah, yeah, you've got to enjoy those moments. And, you know, the other thing is I think tennis teaches you if you want to have success, you've got to be ready to lose sometimes. So sometimes you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes things are not going to go exactly as you think. But if you are scared to do things, you're never going to be successful. Absolutely. We, yeah. You've got to put yourself on the line, haven't you? And, yeah. and, and too, too many people don't. Yeah, I guess a little bit like that when I ran for ITF president. You know, it was funny. A lot of people thought I was a bit crazy, and, and maybe I was. But I had the support of a reasonable number of nations, and I did my best to try to put forward a, a tennis manifesto that was based on, you know, players, tournaments, and and working together for the good of tennis. Uh, I'm glad I did it, okay? I lost. But, you know, I brought things on the table that I think were important and that, that kind of made a difference. So, anyway, but I, I tried. And, and I want to move you into that, Dave, because you said something earlier. You said it's nice. It's nice to be working and just focusing on tennis rather than focusing on politics. Now, I the only chance I get to watch Netflix shows is when I go on long aeroplane journeys without my kids i've got three kids i've got no chance of they're on the plane and, yeah. and and i downloaded the the fifa program that came out three three documentaries all about the presidency of of fifa um yeah. which which is somewhat eye-opening i think a lot of us have have seen it obviously fifa are extremely high profile we've got the world cup going on right now tennis granted isn't quite as high profile but ultimately the itf play one of the roles that, that that FIFA does. So so tell us, are we what what is the situation within the ITF? What was your role? What was your challenges? Why was it so political? Well it's interesting. Okay. So I'm gonna tell you a very interesting story. So when I ran for president, um I decided 2018 because a few nations approached me and and said that they would support me. Okay. So around March while I was doing my campaign the people who had run Infantino's campaign, successful campaign, which was Verocom, they approached me and asked to manage my campaign. Yep. So actually, it was really interesting. So I managed to negotiate down their price because I don't have the budget of something like Infantino. But they helped me a lot because, you know, they helped me with my putting my manifesto together, being really professional and all that sort of stuff. So, but I won't say who said this, but one time in the, towards the end of the campaign, when things got a little bit difficult in terms of people, you know, raising things that, you know, were difficult to fight, you know, not 
dealing with the things I was putting forward, but maybe some personal attacks on me, was that a guy who was very successful in tennis said to me, Dave, you've been picking the grapes for 25 years, and now you want to come up here and drink the wine. Get back picking those grapes, because the presidents of the federations, they, 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 they drink the wine. You should be picking yeah. the grapes. It was an interesting comment. And so to a certain extent, people didn't want somebody raising that the top 300 men and women should make a living. They didn't want to raise the fact that African tennis is really struggling, that the Grand Slam should invest more money in development. They didn't want to hear that. Yeah. But it's true because it doesn't make sense, for example, that the player 180 in the world is losing $80,000 a year. It costs them 200000 and they make about 130 in prize money. So but nobody wants to hear that. And I wrote an article recently, uh, maybe only my children read it, but it was called Do Numbers uh, Speak Louder Than Words? And the article was basically to say that in the top seven organizations, ITF, ATP, WTA, and the Force Flams, there are 4,400 people making a good salary. And then if you go to officiating, there are 1,600 international officials making $1,000 or more. Okay, that's over 6,000 people. There's only 130 men and about 120 women making a living. How is that possible? Yep. So what I was putting forward was things like, come on, guys, let's try to work the seven organizations, work together to maybe agree seven or eight things that would be good for the sport. Let's try to make sure we find a way in the next four years that the top 300 men and women can make a good living. We can all put our heads together. That the players maybe promote more the sport rather than their products that they wear. So things like that. And, and you know, so the political journey, you know, I, I traveled to 70 countries in four months leading up and I met with everybody and I talked to everybody. I tried to explain. And I think that if the CEOs of the federations or the coaches or the players were voting, I probably would have won. But I depend on the presidents of federations to vote. And to a certain extent, I think what I was saying scared them a little bit because people don't want to focus on these things, but they're very important. The development of the game, the fact that young people are not watching tennis. If you go to a grand slam and look at the crowd, 90% of the, or 80% of the people are over, over 50, over 60. You know, so we got to think about the sport for the future. Anyway, interesting journey. And I'm glad I did it, but I'm telling you that it's it's not easy. Now, having said that, I am going to run again for the board of ITF in 2023 and see if I can, because I nearly made it onto the board last time, even though I lost the presidential election. And look, I think people are more you know, supportive of that because I think the ITF needs some really good tennis expertise on the board because the ITF should be leading with the Grand Slams, with the major nations, should be leading more tennis. And it makes no sense to me Dan, that the Olympic tennis event gets no ATP points. Davis Cup and Fed Cup gets no ATP points. But ATP and WDA can give points to the United Cup, for example, that's just starting. It makes no sense. It's not right. You know, tennis was the only sport at the last Olympics that didn't count the Olympic sporting event for ranking. So everything you're saying, Dave, Everybody that's listening to this, and there is, there's 140 plus countries that listen to this podcast, you know, thousands of people. So, so not just my children. For once, Dave, you'll get more than your children listening. Okay, good. <laughs> and now, but 
but the question is, I don't think anybody is sitting there saying, well, that would be bad for tennis if 300 people made money or that would be bad for tennis that, you know, points points would go to the Olympics. You know, the people, they're, they're quite common sense comments that you're making. So the question that comes in my mind is why are the powers that be, the presidents of these organisations, not wanting to make those changes and not wanting to hear that? Um, you know, one time there was a guy called Joseph Browanek, famous coach from Czech Republic who moved to Canada, who was a national coach there. He said to me one time, Dave, the obvious is, is often the greatest secret. And so these things are obvious, okay? And by the way, you know, there's a lot of great tennis presidents out there. Challenge is I don't think they get the information in front of them, and they change over quite, quite, quite often. You know, like if somebody becomes president for two or three years and they change. And so they're not getting the information given to them by the ITF, the ATP, WTA, and the SLAM. So they, they don't really have it in front of them. They don't see what's wrong in the game. And, and even to a certain extent, the players, when they come into the sport, they love the fact they're around the slams. They don't see what's going on. It's only actually at the end of their career when players like Djokovic and Popsidil, people like that, they see that something's wrong. And so, for example, Dan, Djokovic is right. The players need a union. Dan, you cannot be an employer and a union at the same time. So ATP WTA, they're employers. They run a tour that employs the players. So does the Slam. So does the ITF with Davis Cup, Fed Cup, Billie Jean King Cup. And so they need a union to negotiate the terms with all seven organizations. It's normal. Yeah. So it, it's not, you know, you can't be a union and an employer. So Djokovic and these guys, they're right. And you might not know this, but in 2003, um, Wayne Ferreira tried the same thing, but he was he was put down. You know, So players at the end of their career, they realize that something's wrong. So anyway, I, I it's think... It's gone very put, quiet, but, though. The, P, the PTPA, it, it came out, and, and I'm not convinced the communication was that strong in terms of getting a... Getting a the point across of what they were there for. And then it feels like there was this big US Open, well, here we are, we've got a picture on centre court, and then it's gone quiet again. Why Why is, why is that gone quiet again? Why is that not pushing pushing through? Well, because I, I agree, well, that, but but that we need something, but we need to understand what it is and, and what their, their intention yeah. and purpose is. Because those sort of things scare people, because it, it, it can change the status quo. Because uh, if the players are, are having strength to negotiate things, things can change. At the moment, it looks like they have power. There's a player council. But actually, the, the ATB board make most of the decisions. You know, the player council. Look, again, I, I, I'm not... There's great people in all the organizations. It's not for me to say, like, I know everything and they don't know. But what I'm saying all the time is, guys, let's just get together. There's great minds. Let's figure how the sport could work differently. For example, maybe it would be good to have a, a, a Pacific, Oceania, a Pan America, and a Euro Africa circuit. So three different circuits, which are sponsored by the sponsors in the different uh, regions, with the best players coming through to play in the big tournaments. Maybe, you know, but maybe not. Okay, so but surely there's a, there's something different that can be put together, which generates income. So, for example, if you look at golf. You have the U.S. tour, the uh, European tour. You have a tour in South Africa. There's a Japanese tour. There's a lot of different tours which give the players a chance to make money. 
with the best players coming through to play the major. Okay, and as a result, if you look at golf, there's probably about four hundred or four fifty men making a very good living. Yep. Uh, you know, so uh, I'm not saying we have to copy golf, but it's just we got to be open to look at other things. Uh, and at the moment, people are are not very open to any sort of change because remember, this status quo is generating four thousand four hundred jobs in the top seven organizations and it's it's actually quite quite good for, for, for them i'm not sure they really want to make changes and probably I'll, I'll be criticized for saying that but the seven so the seven organizations the itf atp wta and the four grand slams who who holds the card who's the who's the most powerful of those seven well they're all working very much independently. I mean, the Grand Slams combined are probably making 800 million profits between them. Uh, ATP, WTA doing okay, although there's a struggle at times for WTA with China and everything like that. Um, ITF with Davis Cup, uh, Billie Jean King Cup. So everybody's working independently. They all have their spheres of influence. But the biggest power, in my opinion, is the ranking. So who holds the ranking has the power. Yep. So ATP was the, you know, and WTA hold the ranking because of historically there was a, uh, you know, back in 73, I think it was, when ITF allowed them to to take the uh, rankings, not understanding, I think, the, the, significance of the significance of it later on. But the ranking is very important. And, you know, that's why ATP can give ranking points to the ATP Cup or to the uh, United Cup and not give to Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, and Olympics. It makes no sense. And actually, there should be a revolution against that. It's not right. Yeah. And then there's negotiations around that because ATP allowed the Grand Slams to have 2,000 points. Their tournaments have 1,000 points, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of negotiations and all that. And and then the ITF tried a few years ago the transition tour and the – and 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 I guess negotiated with the ATP on the ITF points. What did you what did you think of that? Well, look, it's it's quite interesting because I, I call it back to the future because basically they changed, went to a transition tour, and then they went back to exactly what was there five years ago. So right now is kind of what was there before, although they're starting to add a few things like this 40k events coming in, but the points basically went back to what was there uh, when they started the transition tour. So, look, I do like what they've done in terms of the World Tennis Tour, amalgamating juniors and the whole branding and everything like that. It's, it's really good. But um, I think they could have been more creative in terms of what they what they do. For example, uh, like I said, some regional tours could be possible that might uh, create more opportunities for the players to make money. I'll give you an example. There's probably 40 cities in the world that would like to have an ATP 250. But they can't get it because the ATP limits the number of 250s. So if there were more 250s, more players would make a living. Okay? But the reason they don't allow more 250s is because if they do, the asset value of the ATP 250s will drop. And so the people who own the ATP 250s at the moment would not be able to lease them out to other countries for big big money. And also they would not be able to sell them. So... Again, here you have a situation where the players would like more tournaments because then they'd have more money. The cities around the world want to have an ATP 250. Can't get them. They have the sponsors. So not good for tennis. 
good for yeah. the people who own those limited number of ATB 250s, but it's not right. So Astana, we were trying to get an ATB 250 for 10 years. Eventually, we got one because of China, I think there was less tournaments and stuff. But it's not easy, okay? So I'm just trying to share with you, and, and I don't think that's in the interest of the players. Not at all. and uh, Not at all, and I think that's... That's the, I guess it wasn't, well, I say it wasn't that long ago. It was 17 years ago, but as a as a former player of some level and and coach, it's very, very clear throughout the levels. It's not about the players. You know, the players are, are very much, are very much pawns within the, within the, within the business. And, um, you know, when you start comparing that against some of the other sports and where the revenue goes and, you know, all of, all of these pieces of information, when people start to scratch under the surface a little bit, it certainly seems like there needs to be some some change. But if I can just for a minute, if we can play a little bit of a bit, a bit of role play, you are now the ITF president. Control the controllables holds the power, and we've put you in that position. What's what's your first three things that you would do for the better betterment of of tennis? Well. I said that if I, you know, my manifesto, the first thing I would do is I would call a meeting of the uh, Grand Slams and the major nations, the nations that own ATP WK tournaments, and, and have a, a, a conference to see what ITF and these major nations of the ITF think should be the future of tennis. Yeah, that's the first thing. So all these, you know, 40% of the tournaments on the ATP Tour are owned by federations, Monte Carlo, uh, Italian Open, et cetera, et cetera. They're owned by federations, okay? So we figure what what we want to see, ITF and the major nations, and try to have some sort of alignment between the ITF and these major nations, including the slams, on certain issues. That's what I do, but I, I wouldn't want to go into more detail right now because, Dan, I, I, my plan would be to try to run for the board next year, and yeah. I just think this this, I don't want to be controversial. What I want to do is say that I want to work with people to try to put on the table good ideas i have some other people have some and to try to be confident enough to you know change the status quo a bit if it's good for the sport but for me the first thing is to bring people together and then the next stage would be hbwta involved to see how can we all work together and players of course you know what are some things that would be good for everybody agree seven or eight things and let's all work together on those things that are good for the sport increase the pie so everybody all the seven all the federations make Make some benefit, and and in terms of tennis, you know, and again throughout this podcast, we've I've had this conversation to various degrees with with many different people, and I guess one of my takeaways over the last couple of years having these conversations is outside of the Grand Slams, there is a danger that our sport is dying. Because, you know, there's many layers to our sport. You know, we're talking here about professional tournaments, but you then start going down into academies, to clubs, to, you know, the whole ecosystem that that is, that that, that makes their living and, and has a passion for this sport. You know, I was at the Davis Cup in Malaga. There was moments of of magic, but the, the, the reality of the quarterfinal stage at the Davis Cup is that the stadium was half empty if not more um was is, is the reality you know we've got people now talking a lot about paddle tennis pickleball you know there's other racket sports that are coming in you get varying degrees of 
a feedback on that, that they'll be good for the game of tennis or they won't because ultimately they're taking people. But in your mind, is tennis potentially a dying sport if we're not careful? Okay, so in terms of tennis, what I think people have to understand, tennis is a product. It's a great product. Uh, but there's a lot of markets out there. And what you got to understand is if people are not buying your product, you better not blame the customer. What you have to do is you have to um, change the packaging, the content, whatever, the price and stuff to make it more attractive. So for me, there's different markets. For example, there's young kids, baby tennis, there's 10 and under, there's uh, teenagers, there's uh, busy work people, and then there's senior people who have a lot of time. So you need to adjust the product. So for example, a busy businessman, maybe you need to have a, a, a product where it's they can play in lunchtime in an hour. They can come and they can play two sets of tennis, short sets, tiebreak for the third set, and they're done. Okay? For the seniors, you need maybe longer, more social stuff. For ladies, maybe, you know, you've got to adapt it. Okay? For teenagers, it needs to be punchy, maybe with some music, maybe boy meets girl. Okay? So all of these things, you need to look at tennis again and make it attractive. And that's what pickleball and other sports are doing. You know, a sport that's really uh, grown a lot is uh, triathlon. Now, triathlon is a very tough sport, okay? But what does it have? It has great social. Whether you're the worst or the best, everybody socializes. Whether you're the worst or the best, people ask you, did you improve your score from the last time? Okay? It's boy meets girl, okay? And you create something for that sport. That's why it's grown a lot around the world. You'd never think it would have. Yeah, it's and, almost like you're part of a tribe, isn't it? You're part of... Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and here, here's what, what I don't like about tennis sometimes in the UK is, and I remember I used to own my own tennis center, is you go to the UK and sometimes they ask you, well, you want to join, but how good are you? Okay, whereas if you go into a gym, they're like, oh, let us show you around, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I see in tennis is, um, oh, how's Dan? Oh, he's rubbish. Oh, how's Dave? Oh, he's really good. But Dan might be a nuclear physicist, a very smart guy, really entertaining. Okay, but okay, he doesn't play tennis so good. That's okay. But Dave might be good at tennis, but he's a terrible guy. Okay, so we judge people based on their level rather than as people. And we should be more welcoming. Yeah. You understand what I mean? 100% and, with that, yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So, so that's why within the sport, it's your salespeople. Now, Tennis coaches have to believe in the product. If you're salespeople, I believe in the product. It's great. But it needs to be tweaked a bit. If the people aren't buying it, you need to find a way to adapt it. So this is why I come back to what I did at the ITF, I think, pretty well with the Play and Stay campaign. We recognized this. I put a group together from all the countries. We came up with the with Play and Stay campaign. The slogan was Serve Rally Score. Why did we Serve Rally Score the slogan? Because, Dan, what's the best drill in tennis? The best drill in tennis is hit it over, hit it back, and play a point. Yep. And how do I know that? Because if I put some players doing that with a red ball, with a balloon, with a yellow ball, I can go away for an hour and they come back, they're still doing it. Yep. Because every it's it doesn't mean you have to write down who wins, but the best part of tennis, hit it over, hit it back, play the point. And then the coaches are there to help people do that drill better. Yep. And so we need to make sure people are playing the game in a nice environment. When I was at the ITF, we did some research on what adults want from sport. And here's the interesting thing that came back, and it was actually France, Netherlands, and the UK did this sort of research. Was and I hope I can remember it all. But basically, they want to improve. 
they want social, they want health. Okay, so they want to get healthy. Sorry, I may be missing one, but the last one was they want to do the sport when it suits them. Yeah. So why is uh, gym, cycling, and uh, swimming popular is because you can do it when you want. Mm-hmm. Okay. The problem with tennis is often we say, okay, club night's Wednesday. Well, it doesn't suit me. Okay, but it's Wednesday. So we need to find a way to to find the tennis can fit in with people's life because they're much more busy. They have more kids have more pastimes, more choice. And so parents have demands. So we need to make it easier for people to do in, when it suits them. So I'm giving these as examples of I don't have all the answers, but people have to be prepared to understand that the customer is never wrong. And what pickleball and paddle tennis are doing are they're hitting a lot of the things. It's very easy to play straight away. Okay. It's that's a big one. Fun. I think that's a big it's, one. Yeah, it's fun. It's social. But here's the thing, you know, this is very interesting. Okay. At the AGM, in, I think it was 20, 2009, I did my presentation. We had all the presidents in there, about 100 presidents. And I asked a question. I said, okay, hands up who thinks soccer is an easy sport and who thinks it's a difficult sport? And everybody put up their hand, it's easy sport, okay? So then I said, okay, how many people think tennis is an easy sport? How many people difficult? And everybody put up their hand saying it's difficult. Now, what I said was, tennis is a very easy sport to play if you use a red ball or a balloon or an orange ball. But of course, it's very difficult to play at the highest level. Now, I said soccer is a very easy to play sport, but it's very difficult to play Champions League. (laughs) It's very difficult, okay? So... The point is that if the presidents of the federations are telling people that tennis is difficult, and if the coaches are telling people tennis is difficult, you're not exactly selling your product. So for me, the whole thing is it's, it's, it should be the first time people come to tennis, they should be playing the game the first lesson. Somehow they should be running around, getting a sweat, because especially adults, when they come to tennis, and they come to tennis when they're over 40, because they're not playing soccer anymore, they're not playing basketball, they're not playing other sports, they compare tennis with the sport they came from and they're coming from an active and dynamic sport. They need to tennis to be active and dynamic in that first experience, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it, makes, it makes complete sense. And my mind's going like 10 to a dozen right now because there's, <laughs> there's so many different, different strands that I, it's jumping off into. But if I, if I try and put it into a little bit of a, a little bit more concise, there's, there's two things that jump to my really jump to my mind, and one, and they're they're the same thing, but but said in a different way. The majority of coaches that I have come across in my life, I'm 42 years old. I've been around tennis to a decent level for mm-hmm. 35 plus years. Are level snobs? They, you know, they call themselves like I hate the word performance. I talk to my coaches all the time about being be be a high performing coach, regardless of who is on your court. Exactly. You know, you know that's you know, exactly. but 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 there's very much this thing with oh no no no, I do not go on court with people like that. I am a performance coach. You know, you know, and there's there's very much this level snobbery that's in our sport. Yes, I agree. And and, and I think that then links into the second bit that you touched on there which is this whole thing of self-worth of, of, and I definitely had it as a player and I've definitely experienced it as a coach and being aware of it and managed to override that. And that is this kind of self-worth of, 
of almost measuring ourselves against the results we have or the ranking we have or the 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 the, the squad that we are in. You know, we have it at academy level. You know, and it, even we talk about red, like go down to six, seven year olds. Well, they now play with an orange ball, so they must be really good, and 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 you know almost measuring themselves rather than seeing the red, the, the red, orange, and green as a as a development tool. Now, and and I think those things come hand in hand because then as coaches, it's then the self worth of a coach is well, I work as a performance coach, so then they automatically have this have this feeling it's an ego ultimately and that spans across our sport and 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 I do and I do think even when we start getting into the nitty-gritty and, and again I'll talk about personal experiences we the amount of players we do a Friday match play every Friday always have I've run the academy for 13 years we went through various things, but we wanted the matches to be recorded. So now it's UTR recorded, but it was always about, we put the results on Facebook. You know, we did things that made them feel that it was a, a match. And I can't tell you how many players have injuries on Fridays over the years. No, no, no. I, it, look, this it, is for me a, a big it, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, that's, for, that's that link into, you know, do you know what? how hard people find it. And I love your gym analogy because how many people, different people do you see in the gym that are just working their tails off? You know, it might be someone who is, is able to do five press ups and then is collapsed on the floor. It might be someone who's able to do 5,000 pull-ups. There's such a various, but everyone's in there and judging themselves based on just what they're doing. And and and, and, and in tennis, I, I, do, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think this self-worth, this judgment almost of you as a person based on your ranking level group, what team you play. Even if we go to adults, I used to work at Edgebaston Priory, new members coming in, they their self worth went down because they weren't in the little group of ladies on the Saturday morning playing at ten o'clock. It goes across our sport. Yeah, there's a difference between tennis play and tennis competition. Okay, and it's very very important. So tennis play to me is synonymous with fun. The word play is like fun. So tennis play is where you keep score but nobody writes it down. Nobody says Dave is better than than Dan. Okay, tennis competitions That's when you twice play. You've said you're better than me. I'm going to get a compliment. Okay, sorry. Okay, well, okay, but then switch you, the example okay, next yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll switch it around. Then there's tennis competition, which is where when when Dan beats Dave, uh, we put it down, we write it down, so everybody knows Dan is better than me today. So some people don't like competition, but they want to play. So this difference between tennis play and tennis competition. Now I like. This scoring all the time. I want kids to get used to playing and not to be disrespected because I tell the players in our in our academy all the time, you get respect from showing you try always 100%. Whether you're the worst player, people will respect you. They don't necessarily respect you because you win. There's a lot of people winning who are jerks who are not respected, okay, and who give up in the, when anything there's hardship. So this is what I try to get through. And so the more competition now... In Kazakhstan, one of the battles I've had when I got there was I found when I got there, people trained a lot, but they didn't play enough matches. So now I've had to fight very hard with the culture. So now I push people to do at least 65 singles matches a year, hopefully 80 matches. 
I've yeah. showed them what Casper Rude, Casper Rude, all the players play, and I want people up around eighty matches, two to win loss, win loss ratio, playing different surfaces, different opponents, and that's how you develop your game. And you know, you you have a, a destination which is kind of a ranking goal at the end of the year. This is for the performance players, and they have a, a pathway which is the tournaments they're going to play twenty five weeks, and and some of them make it, some of them don't, but at least they give it their their all. Um. So coming back, this whole thing of getting people to see that playing the game is the nice part. And, you know, I have the same thing when we do playoffs for national teams, the number of people get injured who don't want to play. Because I remember as a player, when I played off for twice for Davis Cup and, and tough matches, oh, my God, you know, you're it's really, you know, or, or playing in college when you're trying to play for your place, those matches are tough. And you know what I mean. Uh, when you're actually playing in another country, nobody knows you. It's actually much easier. Yeah. So. I, I know that. So, but it builds character. So this whole thing of the game of playing the sport, you know, Mike Barrow said it very well. Tennis coaching is not a sport. You know, the sport is actually playing the game. Yep. So we, we, you know, this whole thing of of the the best part of tennis is hitting it over, hitting it back, playing the point. This is what gives people a taste, and this is what gets you hooked. Yeah. The sport is not hitting forehands, which so many coaches think it is. You know. <laughs> you know what I say to coaches all the time is look competition drives play in competition drives coaching supports so people play tennis and you give coaching technical tactical physical or mental to help this player play the game better and whether it's Federer or Nadal or Serena Williams or Dan Kiernan or Dave Miley or a beginner 10 and under player you look at them how are they playing and then you give them some technical tactical physical or mental instruction to help that player play better. That's that's what it's about. 100%. Dave, I could talk tennis, but we need to have a beer or a glass of wine at some Yeah, yeah. And have a oh, I thought a beer came chat. with I thought a beer came with the podcast. <laughs> it does. It it absolutely does. I I, I I owe you one or two of them, that's for sure. Okay, but I'm I, ready. I'll <laughs> yeah. But we've talked more in world terms and we've talked now I want to uh, th this next bit I, I'd like to narrow down now this there's two countries and you've obviously been involved in lots of different places but there's two countries that I'd like to talk about and and if to my mind they're going to be quite contrasting you know when I think of Ireland and I think of Kazakhstan I think of two quite contrasting countries within the world whether that's a mindset now one of my the first place I want to go and and I know it's a place that's very dear to you, Ireland, and it, it is to myself as well. You know, I'm a Keenan. You know, it doesn't take much to work yeah. out. You know, the 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 Irish connection. You know, I'm 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 in the process of trying to get the passport. Um, Good. you know, so that bloody Brexit, but also I I am very proud of my Irish roots. Now, now one thing that always hits me in Ireland, and I'm sure at this point the Irish listeners are going to be pricking their ears up. There's a lot of great people over the years that are in tennis, and you know I've been fortunate to be around a lot of them. But the one thing that hits me, whenever I speak to the majority of people within Irish tennis, is they put a natural ceiling on how good they can be. The one thing that hits me when I speak to you, Dave, is you don't put ceilings on things. So it would seem to me that it's a it's a marriage made in heaven that that one of their own could go back and bring this different mindset this you know this international global mindset you know looking outside the box to to really get 
island onto a track of consistently developing international level tennis players. Now, I know a few years ago you tried to do that and didn't get brought back into the scene. So that's, I suppose, setting up for for you to jump in and you tell me some of your thoughts on on Irish tennis. And, And I'd love then to hear if you were in that position, what is it that you would change in order to to develop tennis within Ireland? Good question. So yeah, yeah, I did. After I left the ITF, I thought about getting involved, and it didn't really work out for different reasons. You're, you're right. There's a there's a sense of uh, negativity in Ireland when I talk to people about Irish tennis, or it has been in the past. Oh, the weather's bad here. The education's hard. You know, I always say, do you think Federer didn't go to school? I remember back in when I was playing in the eighties. Ireland was the same level as Portugal, Poland, in fact, sometimes better, Netherlands, all those countries, they were beating them in Davis Cup, in King's Cup. And so so what happened? You know, people think, oh, the weather's bad, but come on, the weather's bad in Belgium. Oh, indoor courts, sorry, there's lots of indoor courts now in Ireland, lots of them. The best players have access to as much courts as they want. Oh, the education, come on. Ireland still has 18 weeks of holidays. You know, all the other countries have education as well. Oh, it's expensive. Come on. Ireland has a very good economy. You know, there's sponsors out there if you if you really work and get them, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so so I've I've no sympathy from that point of view. And I've seen so many federations, some with money that are not successful, some without money that are successful. You know, Baghdadis came out of Cyprus. Um, you have uh Anz Jabur, Jaziri coming out of Tunisia. I knew them since they were very young. So it's about using limited resources effectively. So in all these federations, you have X amount of, of money, clubs have money, parents have money, maybe the sponsors, etc. So it's about using limited resources effectively. So um, yeah, Ireland should have better tennis. Now, having said that, there's been great strides in the last two or three years. There's a whole new team involved in the board of Tennis Ireland. They're really working well, former tennis guys. They're about to hire a new CEO, who I, I think I'm sure will be good. Uh, there's great people like John McGann, Paul Casey, people like that. Connor Nyland is the Davis Cup captain. They're all trying hard, you know, and I think great people, yeah. I feel there's good signs for the future. Now, Ireland is small, which is a big benefit. That's why Belgium does well. You can bring the players together. You can put them together training. So there's so many positives. For me, you know, I, I've got a great, it's it's my my country. You know, I have a, an apartment right beside Fitzwilliam Tennis Club. I'm still an overseas member there and I go back to Ireland. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always open to help. I don't need any money from Irish tennis, but I do from time to time advise the guys and, ask, you know, say what I think. And I'm, I'm always happy to, to help. I, you know, what I say all the time is, do I say it in Kazakhstan like a broken record? Tennis development and being a good player, it's not complicated, but it requires sacrifice. Yeah. It requires sacrifice by the player, the parent, the coach. You know, they're not going to be able to go with their friends to to things. They're going to have to practice late. They're going to have to do things that are sacrificed. But if they love the sport, they're going to want to do it, you know. And so that's what it is. But it's not complicated. It's volume of training, intensity of training, number of matches, you know. My my last thing quickly to say on that is mindset, mindset, mindset and it feels, and, and this is not just about Ireland, because I think there's other countries that will probably be similar. I would say maybe Denmark. I would say, you know, I've had, you know, countries countries like that where there's, there's some money and the sport isn't 
isn't for competition reasons. You know, like I've been in Spain 13 years. You play sport to win here. You know, like that's yeah. just what that's just what you do. You know, you're a member of sports clubs and and you do you you play to win. Whereas it feels in Ireland and, and to go back to what you said at the start, Dave, you said your father was an accountant and he was disgusted that you wanted to to go into tennis coaching. And 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 that yeah. and, and what I had a little smile when you said it because that would be that would be my take. You've got to be a bit of a black sheep to go against what the status quo is of we had a player and I won't name names, but he was he was with us last year at the academy, did fantastically well, really was coming on, I believe could could be a tennis player. But he was like, no, I'm, 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 I've got my parents. I've got to go back and I've got to go to school. And it was almost like this then defeatist attitude of, I'm not going back to be a tennis player. I'm going back to go to school and maybe play a little bit of tennis. And it's just going to die. It's just going to die down. And and you and, and then we've had another couple of players from Ireland that have come in and they've almost been treated like they're the, this black sheep, these weirdos. These and it, so I, it's, yeah. I had a smile on my face when you said that that was your your father had done a similar thing with you. That that's a big yeah. mindset to shift. That's a big mindset to shift. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was at a conference about four years ago, a PTR conference where Jim Lair was there, and I've got to know Jim really well. You know, he's a, one of the top sports psychologists. And he's been on the Jim, podcast. Yeah. Okay, Jim, I met in 1987, my first worldwide coaches conference in Mallorca, actually okay. Palma, Mallorca, at the Son Vita Sheridan. So I met him. So basically, he said to, uh, in this this seminar, he said, guys. Parents are always saying, oh, what happens if my kid doesn't make it? What happens if my kid doesn't make it? No, forget about that. Because what it's doing is it's teaching your kid more than they'll ever learn in school, going to different countries, life skills, dealing with adversity, all those things that these guys, this is what's going to make you successful later. This is what's going to make you different, problem solving, dealing with adversity. You, you may, you, I, I think you know that in, in my life, I had some tough situations Sorry. That's okay, Dave. Let me start again. Okay. No, you so take your time. It in my life when you know, when my wife died, my wife died suddenly, you know, it was a very tough situation. I had three young kids and stuff, and I was traveling a lot. So it was not easy to deal with that situation. But you know, what I'd been through in life in tennis and stuff probably prepared me better for that than, than most people would be prepared. So this is the thing that Jim was saying that it's about, you know, you, you don't expect a kid to be top 100. If that's what you want, it's unlikely that's going to happen. You're going to be lucky if that happens. But tennis can give you a lot, you know, U.S. scholarships. There's a lot of things in your life that they can give you. And it teaches these life skills. So this is a, a big, big thing, I think. And, uh, yeah, Jim, I think, was was good. And so in Ireland, people have to get around their head around that because they're not – they can still come back at 23 and do education or go into another role. Like Connor Nyland was a great player, made a couple of grand slams. Now he's working in business and doing very, very well. You know, so so I think, yeah, it's a it's a mindset. And I, I think, you know, Ireland has to look at all these countries that are successful, you know, Lithuania, Estonia, all these countries with probably less resources, Poland, Portugal. Okay, Scotland. some have better weather. Yeah, so, yeah, some have better weather, some not, but but a lot of it's about believing. And this is one of the things I've had to do in Kazakhstan a lot is to instill in the coaches the belief that they can be good. Don't be self-defeatist. The, co the players need people around them to be positive. Now, that's not 
some bullshit where you're telling people they're good if they're not. But for example, in the kind of former Soviet country culture, generally coaches stop when the player misses. They don't stop when the player does it well. And so I've been trying to get the coaches to really be a little more positive that when a player does well or if they lose a match where they played well, make them feel good because it's about building confidence, maintaining confidence. You want people holding themselves up that they believe, come on, you can beat the uh, Russians. You can beat the, the Belarus players. You can beat the Ukraine. All the players from around, come on, Kazakhs can be good. Believe in yourself. Yeah. But you need people around that to do that. And so what I can bring to the table is I've seen around the world players coming through who you, from countries that you wouldn't have thought could produce players. So it is possible. You have to believe. And, and in terms of Kazakhstan, going on your journey, what has been the standout culturally for you and how much have you then felt that you've had to develop and impact that? Okay, it's a good question. So let, let me tell you an interesting story because when I lost the presidency of the ITF, uh, about three days later, Stephen Martins called me. And I don't know if you know, Stephen Martins know was Stephen the former really well, Dave, yeah. Davis Cup captain of uh, Belgium, worked at the LTA. So he's now the technical director of FIFA. So he asked me to work for FIFA. So long story, but I was going to work for them. And I went to Doha for a conference and I was sitting with Arsene Wenger and all these guys. But then COVID hit, so it didn't happen. I was going to be traveling for them. I'm sitting around uh, for three months, London, no gym, nothing in 2020. And then the president of the Kazakhstan Federation called me, uh, Bulat. And he's a very rich guy, very successful businessman, and he loves tennis. Okay, So he asked me would I come and maybe help them to put a system in. So I went during Wimbledon, actually, because Wimbledon didn't happen that year. I went to Kazakhstan and then eventually agreed to move there in August 2020. The reason I moved there was because it was interesting for me. My first time in Kazakhstan was 1993 when I visited there after I joined the ITF. So I knew the region a little bit. But I saw 38 indoor centers around the country that had been constructed, uh, a bit disorganized with the system, but a lot of potential. So I decided to give it a go. And traveled around all the country, got to know it pretty well. It's a huge country. It's the ninth biggest country in the world. Four hours to fly across the country, two time zones, very different weather. Astana gets to minus 37. Shimkent gets to plus 44 during the summer. Anyway, I got involved. But here's the thing that I'd learned from the ITF is that you need to be systematic and you need to have a, a structure, but it needs to be respectful of the culture. So there's a culture in Kazakhstan. It's really it borders Mongolia, it borders borders China. People are really Asian, much more than say okay. in Georgia, Belarus, and stuff. So the culture has to be respected. But what I try to do is say, guys, we have to respect the principles of volume of training, intensity of training, uh, number of matches, and stuff. So we need to be systematic from that point of view. So that's what I've attacked. Coach education was very important, setting up a structure, and now we have a you know, baby tennis, 10 and under, 14 under program. To give an example, when I got there, there was no system for working with the best 12 and under, 14 under players. So I set up something very simple, which is kind of, we identified through the tournaments, the best 15 boys and girls under 12, 15 boys and girls under 14. We put them into gold, silver, bronze. Gold and silver came to the camps. 
bronze, we're watching you, and we start moving them every three or four months so people can move up and down based on their results and stuff. And we start helping their private coaches, guys, if you want to plan, you have to play more matches, play more tennis Europe, and trying to help the coaches to do a better program. So quite, it's not, not complicated, but quite interesting. And that had an impact around the country. We have people going around making sure the coaches raise the standards. And then implement a national conference where we bring in some good people. I think, you know, her voice match that she came in last year. We have Ivan Molina coming this year. So a lot of different things, but really just making sure that there was a, a good pathway. People can see if your kids yeah. start in baby tennis, maybe sometime you can play for the Davis cup team or go to the Olympics in the future. There's a pathway, you know, they know what they have to do. So after two years, we're, I think having pretty good results, people have woken up a little bit to the fact that, Kazakh players, we had three boy, three girls and one boy playing junior slams this year. We have some good girls coming up now. Uh, we have some boys under 14 who did really well recently. I told you about in the team event. Yeah. So my objective, Dan, okay, Spain is different because Spain is survival of the fittest and it has a great competitive system and you know that. Yeah. So people, if you become the best player junior in, in Spain, you're going to be unbelievable. But every country is a little bit different. The Czech system is a little bit different to the Belgium system is a little bit different to all, yeah. you know, but in the end, everybody has a system, the Canadians, the Italians, that has some sort of structure to it. And that's what I've tried to do in Kazakhstan. And I think it's beginning to, to work that instead of investing in one player in each age group, we have seven or eight players in each age group who are doing the right amount of training, the right amount of technical, uh, right amount of sort of physical training, tennis training, number of matches. And let's see over the next three years, maybe two will be playing junior slams, maybe one will go on to professional, but there's a there's a pathway. The culture, you know, I, I'm quite tough in Kazakhstan where people say, oh, but Dave, this is Kazakhstan, it's not going to work. Sorry, don't say that to me. Don't okay, don't me. say that to me. Okay, it's, yes, maybe you have to train at different times because of the culture, maybe the schooling, but we have to respect that, but sorry, you still can play 20 hours a week if you're 17 years old, you still can play 65, 80 matches a year. You can still do your education. So don't tell me, okay, yeah, you're going to have to sacrifice. It's going to be tough, but don't tell me you can't do it. It's massive, you know, having that. And 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 I, I know I mentioned it. That's what I see the mindset in Ireland. But I, I can talk again from my experience. You know, I was British number one doubles player. And I remember, I, was, I remember. I 150 in the world, but the the ranking I had to be to get into Wimbledon was being 150 in the world. So I got there, you know, it, 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 and, and I, one of my big reflections of my playing career is I absolutely put ceilings on things linked to maybe a ceiling that was put on from the Federation. And that's something I've then taken into my, my coaching and my, you know, building a, a business and an academy is if somebody says no to me, I just think, okay, I'll show you. This is this is absolutely possible, and that's I think why I enjoy speaking to yourself as well, Dave, because yeah. I can I can absolutely feel that, and I think you know having that mindset and having that absolutely why not? Why can't we achieve this? There's you know, and that's hey. one of it's one of the things I love about tennis as well is there's not necessarily a selection. I know within within federations you're selected to. For funding or whatever it might be, but the number of conversations I've had over the years with with parents where they've said, 
where we haven't been selected. And I said, well, the federations don't select who's going to be tennis players. The, the beauty of tennis is anybody can be a tennis player. You can do it your own way. You can do it whichever which way you want to do it, and you can find your way. Whereas in football or or many of these team sports, you are relying on somebody to select you to play for their team. And I do think it's one of our beauties of 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 the sport of tennis is people can do it many different ways and they can find their own route there. Anyone can go and sign in to the ITF this weekend in Portugal. Anybody. Yeah. Look, know, I, I agree. You know, that that is the great thing about tennis. And I and I, I'm all constantly surprised by players who make it and players who don't make it. Some players that I never thought would make it, make it. And some players that I thought for sure would make it, and they don't. And you know what I mean. There'd been a lot of cases like that. But had this situation, I think you'll appreciate this. Sometimes we're deciding wild cards, okay? So coaches, we have a wild card group. Everybody's saying, my player should get a wild card. My player should get a wild card. And everybody's like unsure, okay? So you know what? I The first time I did this, it was very funny. People were shy. I said, okay, guys, get them to play a match, and whoever wins gets the wild card. And everybody's like, what? I said, we're not sure, so let them play. And when they tell the players, what? (laughs) And they're afraid. So so it's very funny. I said, all we're going to know is who's best today. The next time, the other player might win. But the yeah. point is that selection is interesting. So for the national teams, we have a policy now, which is like this. When we're deciding who plays World Junior Tennis or Junior Davis Cup or Billie Jean King Cup, if the players have done enough to really justify selection, they're, they're selected automatically. So if somebody is like 200 ITF and they're under 16, they probably get selected automatically. But the rest play playoffs yeah. and they don't like it. And the coaches don't like it, but we're not sure. So let's see who wins. It toughens them up. So so it's it's quite funny, but uh, people look to be kind of crazy. I said, look, if we're not sure, play a match. It's yeah. the best way, fairest way. This is what the sport's about. And it's gladiatorial. It you, it's gladiatorial. It's, it's, it shows character. You know, who's going to win, who's not going to win. And it, it, you know, it's not that I'm going to look down on somebody because they lose. If they go out there and give it their all... Because sometimes, like right now, when I see these seven or eight players, 14 and under, so they're born 2008, you know, some of them are doing much better than the others. And and they say, oh, this place, well, let's see what happens. Because there's a lot more to tennis at the pro level than just motor skills, as you know. So will the people be actually able to travel 25, 30 weeks of the year? Will they like it? A lot of things that are going to make the difference. Are players going to injure it or not? So let's see what happens, but kind of spread it a bit. Make sure people are, again, right volume of training, playing the matches, etc. Let's see what happens. And uh, Mike Barrell was always very good. Nobody comes to tennis wanting to be an average player. They come in with a dream that they're going to be good. And let's, let's try to give them a chance and see what happens and not to be too down on it. Dave, there's... There's so many things we could get into. We might have to have a part two um, <laughs> at, at, at some point because I have loved the conversation. Before we go to the quick fire round, my 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 last question is what what is next for Dave Miley? I said earlier, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. But look, there's always things. You know, I actually, <laughs> I started writing a book uh, after I left the ITF. I spent about a year doing it and maybe I'll finish it at some stage. But it's a it's a travel and tennis book. Okay, it combines stories about tennis and stories about travel. 
you know, I travel so much. I have a lot of stories, funny stories about travel and stuff. So I, I, I might try to finish that because I, I did a lot of work in it. But the problem with books, you know, I've written seven books in my time, the Advanced Coaches Manual being the most popular one. And whenever you think you're about 60% finished, you're actually not. You're about 30%. So <laughs> it takes a long time to finish and you never feel fully satisfied. You know, as you get older, it's a... Uh, I use the example of Picasso. And by the way, I'm not comparing myself to Picasso. But what happens in coaching, I think, a little bit, is a bit like the artist. You start off and you know nothing. Okay? So you're very simple in your approach. Halfway through your career, you've learned all this stuff about biomechanics and everything. And you start talking about the angle of the racket, three degrees, whatever it is. Okay? And you get very complicated. Your best work is when you know all this stuff. Because I really, I think I know biomechanics well. I know physical conditioning pretty well. I know technical tactics. I think maybe I'm learning all the time, but I think I know it pretty well. But now is the masterpiece because Picasso could have been complicated, but at the end of his life, he was so simple. And they were the masterpieces. Yep. So when I sit with really good coaches like you, Dan, like with Ivan Molina, with people who are very experienced, Van Grunfeld, I'm always struck by how simple they are. They need to hit cross court more. They need to be more off the court. First serves in, you know, it's not so complicated. And for me, that's the big thing is I feel now that I have a lot of knowledge, but I know how to apply it in different situations. With this player, I think you need this sort of communicate with this player, something different. So I, I would like to feel I could use my expertise a little bit better. I say all the time to our fitness, exp our fitness guys and some of the other people, a really good expert is somebody who makes complicated simple. I'm very happy in Kazakhstan. I really enjoy my work, and I think I'm having an impact. But, yeah, I think I could contribute in other areas. I think use my knowledge in a very uh, simple and constructive way. Make sense? It absolutely does, and, and, a, and a big well done. And thank you for all of your contribution to tennis as well. You know, and it's, I think, too often, you know, we go through this tennis life and we're kind of trying our very best, and, and people don't stop and reflect and say, hey, who who do we thank and you know what gratitude we owe to people like yourself that have led the way and 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 asked the right questions and put yourself in a position because because the sport of tennis needs that you know we don't just need people that are going to say yes 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 you know we need people that are going to try and create some change so thank you for that and 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 also I want to give you a personal thank you as well for you know it was a brilliant chat but the the, the power for me of the moment that you shared about your wife and 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 for me that message of you know we talk about tennis rankings tennis results we talk about winning and losing and we often throw out there and certainly a massive philosophy of mine is about life skills you know and control the controllables is something i've taken to to heart over the last 20 years but ultimately when all is said and done hitting a fluffy yellow ball over the net it is what has happened to our character and how we're able to use those skills to develop relationships to be able to deal with good bad experiences that are thrown at us and and for me that was such a powerful moment that i know people listening to will will take will take with them it's something certainly personal to me control the controllables around tennis is easy you know, but my mum was diagnosed with dementia four years ago and, and that was a real test. You know, how how are we now going to, as a family, control what we can control? And, you know, yeah. that's that th those are the moments in life that really do that, that, that really do challenge us. So so thank let you. Me, let me let me tell you something that I think I say many times is that 
the work is the vehicle. So tennis is the vehicle. It moves you through your life. I'm lucky we have a really good vehicle. Okay. I'm moving through life with tennis. What's important is family, friends, and health. That's what's important. If you don't have those, you don't have anything. But we're lucky we have a great vehicle. I think I have the best vehicle. I've been moving in a, in a Rolls-Royce tennis for the last 35 years. I hope I can keep doing that, okay? Absolutely. Thanks, man. Well, we've got the quick fire round. You oh, can't really? Okay. 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 Every, anyone that knows me, Dave, is smiling right now because tennis as a vehicle is Soto Tennis is one of our big strap lines. So we're okay. absolutely on the same page. Okay, and good. Very quick fire round. What does control the controllables mean to you? Just uh, those things that are in your control, your effort and everything like that, because you can't control how good the other player plays. So just control how you, well you play and do the best you can, see what happens. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. Or is it United Cup? Uh, I think Hopman Cup was there. I don't know how the ATP WGA are doing a, a United Cup because it's the same thing. Uh, but it's okay, they have points now. We'll see how it is. Serve or return? Uh, oh, gosh. You know, these days the serve is so important, but, you know, both are equally important. Sorry, they Single, have to be both. Singles or doubles? I think singles, yeah, because that's how you make your money and stuff. Let's or no let's? No let's. Roger or Rafa? Roger for me. Serena or Venus? Serena. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? I would play... In the ATP and WTA, I play off for one to eight with different prize money, different points. And then you'd, should... have, then you'd have a lot, a lot of more atmosphere in the last few days of the tournament. Great. And... Like making the cut in golf. I like it. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Ooh, that's an interesting one. You know who I think is, is a, would be a legend to get is Doug McCurdy. This guy... You know, Doug, I don't know where you had him on, but Doug was, I told you, the person who influenced me a lot, lot, has been everywhere in the world, was US tape director of player development. Unbelievable guy. You should talk to him. If you are able to pass the baton and put us in touch, this is how the podcast works. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell him, you know, that you're paying that much money. It's unbelievable. <laughs> just, just make sure he looks at the small print. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dave, I will be in touch. I'm going to let you go. But you've okay, been, thanks, you've been man. an absolute star. Thank you for coming Okay, on. good stuff. And as with all of our guests, a big thank you to Dave for giving up his valued time to come on and share his wisdom, his, his wealth of knowledge in the game. And I don't know, I'm hoping I might even get to meet up with Dave. I don't know if I, I'm, off to, I'm off to Indian Wells. So by the time you're listening to this, I will be in the tennis paradise and it's the first time that I would have made it there age 42. You know, nothing comes easy in this sport and, you know, I've been working for 30 years as a player or as a coach and I'm excited now to be having the opportunity working with Lloyd Glasspool and Harry Heliavara to get to go to these events, you know, to be around the best players in the world, to be in the real heart of what is going on, and then to be able to share, to share that knowledge with you and also the players that we're working with at the Soto Tennis Academy and anybody else that wants it. Get in touch, as always, and let me know. I will take my microphone with me 
Uh, let me know who you want to hear from. Who is it that you want to hear from in the world of tennis? And maybe even more important than that, what topics do you want to listen to? As for Dave, tennis is a vehicle. You know, we talked about so many different topics. I could delve into so many of them. But ultimately, a big philosophy of mine is that tennis really is a vehicle. It's not just about what is happening in the here and now. It's it's about what tennis is helping us achieve in the future. And anybody that wants to have a happy, healthy, successful, however we want to measure that life, and you go along this tennis journey, you really won't go far wrong if you throw yourself at it. And that's what Dave's tried to do over the years. He's tried to get as many people into the sport as he possibly can, and then looking to provide the best opportunities, the best environments for people to go and excel, for, for people to grab a hold of their own destiny. And, and that's right, speaking my language. And I admire Dave so much for that. And all of you out there that are on your own tennis journey. It's worth it. I promise you, you know, keep going, keep persevering. You know, there's so much that you will take from this sport that will take you through the rest of your lives, you know, and it, and it truly is a vehicle that we have for life. So thank you, Dave, for, for those words. And to the rest of you, hope you're well. Enjoy Indian Wells and also the hard courts in Miami before clay court season is just around the corner as well. But all the best to everybody. Uh, get in touch. You know, thank you for the ratings, the reviews, everything that's been coming through over the last couple of weeks. Your support is, is much appreciated from the whole team here at Control the Controllables. But till next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.